what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this, the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Well, does God say through Jeremiah, let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. For in knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What were you made for? To know God. So writes J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God, I commend it to you. And this kind of collage of quotes serves as an appropriate prelude to our text this morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and here we find Paul giving thanks for what God has done in the Ephesians and praying that God would reveal himself more and more to them. Ultimately, his prayer is that the Ephesians would come to know God more. And so, our main idea this morning, I've tried to, to capture kind of the thrust in a proposition, is that the Holy Spirit enables us to know God. The Holy Spirit is how God reveals himself to us in his word. And I want to encourage you, exhort you to pray, to pray that you might know God more. And especially that you might gain an acute awareness of God's great power. We'll work through the text in two parts. We'll, we'll look at Paul's prayer of thankfulness as well as his prayer that the Ephesians would come to know God more. But first, let's pray ourselves. Father, we come before you this morning in imperfect people, people who have sinned this week, people who have worshipped idols this week, people who have valued family and self and all kinds of trinkets more than you. Forgive us. We thank you that indeed mighty is the power of the cross and that when our faith is in Christ, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask now that you would give to us your Holy Spirit, that we would feel the weight of your presence on our shoulders this morning, and that it might serve to lighten our hearts and ignite our souls in praise of you. God, you are so glorious, and, and we come before you now asking for a fresh glimpse of your glory, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And so we, your people, pray that you would meet us and speak to us in your holy word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Look with me, if you would, at verse 15 of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is giving thanks for the Ephesians. Say, well, for this reason, and I know it's followed by because they're in English, but really, uh, this flows both ways in the text. There's really two reasons he's giving thanks for the Ephesians. The first is predicated on all that God has done in them, which Paul outlines in verses 3 through 14. That one long, magnificent sentence which details for us that God has chosen his people in eternity past before the foundation of the world for adoption through Christ. Those wonderful truths that those who come to Christ in faith are redeemed. They're freed from sin's slavery. They're freed from the penalty of their sins. Indeed, they are forgiven and made right with God. Further, he, he says that, that God's people are sealed by God's Holy Spirit and that this guarantees all the promises of God, the inheritance that is due to all of God's people. And so Paul says, because of your great work in the Ephesians to whom I am writing, I give you thanks, God. And he says, I, I give you thanks because you have given them every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ, do, 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 for those that were here last week. But notice, he moves on. It's for this reason, because of what God has done in you and saving you, I, I, I give thanks. He says, for this reason, and then here's the other one, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is not giving thanks for a generic faith here. A faith in self or in fairies, or a faith in faith itself. This faith has content to it. It's faith in Christ. Your faith is only as good as who or what your faith is in. So, for example, and this is one of my favorite illustrations, uh, if I sincerely believe and have faith that I can breathe underwater and then attempt that feat... I will drown. My ability, the thing that I have my faith in, my ability to breathe underwater, can't deliver on my faith. And so at the end of the day, my faith is faulty and fruitless. It's fraudulent. It's a, a worthless kind of faith. Paul is giving thanks that the Ephesians have a powerful faith, a saving faith, a faith in Jesus Christ. And I always just, this is just a notation. Sometimes I think as Christians, we, we have this idea that we have to build up our faith. And the more faith we have, the, the closer we'll be to God. It's kind of like, the, you know, the more happy he'll be with us. But the reality is, it's not the amount of your faith that saves you or makes you right with God. It is the object of your faith. And Jesus saves even those, if you're like me, who often have mustard seed-sized faith. Jesus has the ability to save anyone from their sins. He will forgive all who put their faith in him. 
So friend, this morning I ask you, what is your faith in? I pray that you would put it in the Lord Jesus. Notice the other thing Paul is giving thanks for here in verse 15 again. And your love toward all the saints. Saints, remember, is not a special class of Christian. It's just any Christian anywhere. It's anybody who has faith in Jesus. And the way that there's this unbreakable connection between faith in Jesus, faith in God, and love for other Christians. One authenticates the other. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we we are told that that we are to love one another. Jesus says that people will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, the way that you love other Christians. So we are called to love one another. Paul's giving thanks for this church because of the compelling love they have for each other. And I pray that we would be the kind of church that people would give thanks for. That they would see our love and our care for one another and go, God is there. That they would give thanks for us. Paul gives thanks and praise for this people. We ought to follow his pattern and pray for one another. Do you pray for the other members of this church? Paul is praying for them here, giving thanks for these Christians. We ought to pray for and give thanks for one another. Also, so I want you to notice how encouraging must this have been to, to get a letter from Paul the Apostle and he says, I'm giving thanks for you because of your faith in Jesus and your love toward one another. I mean, that, that must have just put these, these Ephesians over the moon with cheer. Like, how encouraging would that be? It made me think, as we pray for and give thanks for one another, we also ought to encourage one another. What I mean by that is when you see God working in another brother or sister's life, tell them. Tell others about it. Like so often, uh, we have that kind of sinful gossip where we, say, we, we talk about other people. Did you hear she did this or that? But I also think there's a positive kind of gossip. Where you can gossip the good about other people. Did you see how Jane Doe was worshiping this morning? It was so encouraging to me. Friends, we ought to encourage one another. I might say, have you noticed how how Brother David has been enduring such a difficult season in his life as his father battles cancer? Have you noticed how how Dennis is a, a little bottle of sunshine? Right? He comes into a room and you talk to him and you leave happier. Have you noticed how how Kate and Sarah faithfully bring their children to the Lord's Day and faithfully teach them about God throughout the week? Have you noticed how, how Randy is here every Sunday when Dan's here? 
She missed one Sunday, and it was when he wasn't here, and so it's a joke. <laughs> I, I love you, Randy. But seriously, seriously, I see, I, come, I, I go back and forth in the mornings, and, and I'll see Randy's car out there, sometimes before Dan's, and it brings a smile to my face. It encourages me. She's excited to be here, to be with you, and to worship the Lord. Friends, we ought to encourage one another, give thanks for one another, and pray for one another. I so very amen what Dane Ortland just says. He says, Sincere, specific, non-flattering encouragement is the lifeblood of a church's unity. A church can be fully orthodox, but failing to encourage is like opening the door to the devil and inviting him to create or strengthen division. Encouragement locks that door. Friends, let us lock the door to the schemes of the evil one. Let us encourage one another and pray for one another and give thanks for one another. And what you'll find if you do this is you will end up loving one another more. And I'm going to be honest, it's not always easy to love other Christians. Some Christians are like me, right? Especially, I was joking with, with the Blairs the other night. Uh, we were having dinner, and I said, oftentimes people get to know me at the, at the jump, and they think, ugh, I don't, I don't know that I want to get to know him any better. <laughs> and, and I told them, like, a lot of people have this reaction. I'm, I'm pretty self-aware, but, but hang in there. I, I'm kind of like coffee or whiskey. Like, if you keep trying it down the road, you'll acquire a taste for me. And... <laughs> And, and I can become one of your favorite people. <laughs> the church is, is full of people like me that, that are hard to love. But I'm telling you, commit to people like me that are hard to love. Commit to loving because this is what Christ has called us to. It's not easy, but, but it's necessary. 1 John three twenty three. Now this is His command that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He commanded us. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Friends, let us love one another pray for one another, encourage one another. Let us give thanks for what God has done in us in giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul then shifts gears. He's given thanks to God, and now he's going to make intercession for the Ephesians, starting in verse 17, but I'll start reading in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's not saying that he prays unceasingly for them, right? He's saying when he prays, he gives thanks for the Ephesians. It's a regular practice. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. We have to clean up some things before we get to what, what Paul's saying here by identifying what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that 
the Ephesians don't yet have the Holy Spirit and they need to somehow get the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that the Ephesians need to seek some sort of second blessing of the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying is that you have the Holy Spirit who has sealed you in Christ, who gave you faith, you've been born again by the Spirit, and you need the Spirit to continue to disclose Jesus Christ to you. You need the Spirit to give you knowledge of God, to help you know God, and to not just know about God. Let me give you an example. Um, when I met my wife, we were, we were working together for the PGA Tour and kind of food and dining stuff, and uh, I met her, and I thought, hey, I'm, I might get to like her a little more. I want to know her a little bit. And so I, I did the really gentlemanly thing, and I made sure uh, to invite her out to really fine establishments like IHOP and, and, and the Waffle House. And, and I asked her questions about herself, and, and we got to know each other. And we've continued to get to know each other for over a decade now. And I still feel like there's, there's a lot, lot to learn. But I can only know my wife insofar as she reveals herself to me. Right? If, if I say to her, you know, baby, 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 listen. You, me, you know, Waffle House. Ka-chow. And she's like, no thanks. No thanks, I'm not into that. Well, then I, don't, I can't know her any further than that. She has to tell me about herself. This is true with God. We can only know God insofar as he discloses himself to us. And God has disclosed himself to us in his word. And we can only really know God through his word when the Holy Spirit gives us that knowledge. Paul understands that spiritual things are spiritually discerned by spiritual people. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. It's the Spirit who enables us to read God's Word and to learn about God in a way that is relational rather than just cold and mechanical. This became really apparent to me when I was an undergraduate at WVU studying world religions, and I had a great many professors who would begin their courses by telling me that their goal was to convince any Christians in the room that there was no God. And I would have really good conversations with them. And these, these men and women knew the Bible really, really well intellectually, but they didn't know God. Why? Well, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The Spirit must teach us. The Spirit must reveal God. It is the Spirit who must give us insight into how God has revealed Himself in His Word. This is, this is why Paul prays in this kind of weird way, right? He says, uh, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that's God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Think about it for a second. 
Hearts don't have eyes, do they? And you see what he's, what he's saying is, the Spirit needs to give you the ability to see. To see and believe and understand. And Paul, Paul wants us to, in the Ephesians, to know God. To not just know about God. So, brothers and sisters, give yourselves to pursuing the knowledge of God. Pray that the Spirit would animate your life in such a way and empower your reading of the Scripture in such a way that you might know God more. Listen to God's Word proclaimed. Sing of the power of the cross. Meditate on the future marriage supper of the Lamb as you take the bread and the cup in your hands. See the Holy Spirit at work in the people of God, shining through them as we encourage one another and spur one another on towards good deeds and love. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Ask God to show you Himself. Draw near to Him and He will draw nearer to you still. One of the wonderful things about God is no matter how close you get to Him, you can always get a little bit closer. Commit yourself to knowing God. Paul wants us to know God, and he wants us to know some specific things about God. Look again, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe. We'll start with the hope to which he has called you. What does Paul mean? Well, the hope to which God has called you, Christian, is eternal fellowship with God and with other Christians in the new heavens and the new earth. He has called us to a wonderful inheritance. Paul speaks of it, this calling in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, saying, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He also connects this calling with the predestination that he talks about earlier in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He comments on it here in Romans 8:30. That was complicated to follow, but listen, I'm reading Romans 8:30. And those whom he, that's God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The hope to which we are called is in Christ. It's to an inheritance that is imperishable, kept in heaven for us. This is where our hope is to be. In our future, together with God and one another. Not in the right now. The current is not ultimate. And yet so often we live as if it is. Imagine with me for a moment that Warren Buffett left to you his fortune. You've got a bank account down here at the uh, credit union. All you have to do to claim this vast 
wealth. You should go down to the bank and sign a few papers, but, but it's yours. On your way to the bank, you get a flat tire about 100 yards out. Now, are you going to worry about the flat tire? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, it would be quite, quite foolish of you to sit on the side of the road and go, worst day of my life. Oh, man. I can't believe it. always happens to me. This is suffering. I can't believe it. It would be foolish because you know there is an incredible inheritance coming to you. And the flat tire is no big deal. We laugh, but isn't this how we live all the time? We have flat tires in our lives that consume our thoughts as if they're ultimate and our hope is now rather than in the future. Too often we try to make right now into heaven. I wonder... What flat tires are in your life right now? Bills, family issues, health, relationship. Friend, is it possible that you have put too much hope in this life? We must not put our hope in the here and now. We must put our hope into the hope that God has called us to. Paul wants us to know what is the hope to which God has called you. That wonderful inheritance. This world is fading away. That's a good thing. Second thing Paul wants us to know is what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Notice, this is really interesting. Whose inheritance does Paul want us to know about? You see this? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? His being God's. Paul is picking up on some Old Testament imagery wherein God's people are God's inheritance. And what what he's saying, so one of the things you need to know about God is that He values you as His inheritance. He's set that worth and that love upon you. As an earthly king values treasuries full of silver and gold, God values his people as his wealth and honor. This reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. I'm sure most all of you are familiar with it. Do you remember that the youngest son comes to the father and basically wishes him dead? He says, you're great, dad, but I would like to have my share of the inheritance now while you're still alive so that I can go do my thing. 
And the father gives him the money and he goes and he, he squanders it all in, in wild living and he comes to a point where he's at the bottom of the barrel at the end of his rope and he says to himself, even my father's day laborers, his servants, his employees, are, they have it better than I do. And he concocts a plan. So I'm going to go to my dad and I'll, I'll tell him, hey, I, I don't, I'm not worthy of you, but could you please just hire me as, as a servant and I'll live better than I am now. And so he practices and rehearses his story as he, he makes the journey home. And I know this is not historically accurate, but in my imagination, this is how the scene plays out. You, you, you have the, the sun kind of setting over the horizon. You've got the father in his rocking chair. And all of a sudden, a small shadow is outlined by the sun at the edge of the property. And the father's heart beats a little faster. He knows that shadow. And springs to his feet and he runs to his son. Running is undignified in the ancient culture. He humbles himself so that he can get to his son quickly and he, he wraps him in a hug and lays kisses on him. And the son tries to give him the story that he's rehearsed. I'm not, not worthy of you. Just make me like one of your servants. But, but the father chooses to be deaf. He won't hear any of it. Instead, he puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and says, we are having a celebration. My son who is dead is alive. Why? <laughs> Why would the father act that way? I mean, shouldn't he have maybe ran to the end of the property and said, you squandered all my money and just socked the kid in the face? Why would the father greet the kid this way? Why would he greet his boy like that? Because his son is of far greater value than any of his money. His son is his inheritance. Dear Christian, this is how God loves you. This is the value God puts on you. You are his inheritance. Wayward Christian, you need to know that you have dishonored God and that you are dishonoring him with your rebellious living. Do you also need to know that God has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. He is not standing around with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face. He's waiting for you with a rose and rings, with a smile and a kiss. Wayward Christian, it is time to lay down your sins and to come home to the Father. He will forgive. He loves you. Come home. Non-Christian, you can know this love of God. You, you can know it.
if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that our sins might be forgiven and he rose from the dead so that we might be free from death. If you trust in him, his death is your death and his life is your life. You can know God. Trust in Christ. Paul wants us to know the hope to which we've been called, the the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Look with me at verse 19 and we'll read the rest of the passage together. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wants us to to know about God's power, and so he actually piles up a few different words that just mean power and strength and might. And he brings to us this image of Christ crucified and exalted, risen and ruling. And he chooses this particular image, this particular truth, because it's the most significant Thing that has happened that God has done in all of history. I mean, you think about it, it's not as if raising Jesus from the dead were, were hard for God. But God, God's omnipotent, so it's, it's all pretty easy. Creation from nothing, uh, defying the laws of thermodynamics by speaking to Moses through a bush that doesn't quite burn up, judging the world with a cataclysmic flood, all of it is quite simple. Yet, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize that when someone wants to tell about God's power, they usually point to a particular event. Y'all know what event that is, right? The Exodus. The Exodus. Over and over. You'll read about the Exodus over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. This is significant. This is God taking his people out of slavery and into sonship. Now in the New Covenant, we see an even greater exodus than the death and resurrection of Jesus. His blood purchases us out of slavery and into sonship. Paul uses this event to show us just how powerful God is. He can save sinners like us. Notice what he says about the exaltation of Christ. He worked in Christ. He he raised him from the dead. Jesus is master over death. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He is the living one. He seated him at the right hand, at his right hand. Now, Now we know God doesn't literally have a right hand, right? This is imagery to show us that he is seated in the place of power. He's enthroned and exercising the rule of God. See in verse 22, he put all things under his feet. 
Jesus' enemies even now are beneath his feet. He, he has his foot on all the forces of evil. And one day, he's going to press it down completely. He appointed him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is ruling everything on behalf of his people. This, this image of, of the body is familiar to us, but I don't want you to miss, it's a little different than in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we're the body of Christ, and some of us are eyes and ears and mouths. But here, we're the lower part of the body, and Jesus is the head. He is the one who dictates what we do. He's the authority, and we act in submission to his authority. We obey him. It's just so, so interesting. People don't know what to do at the end where it's like, the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. And the best idea that, that somebody can get to, I think, nobody speaks with certainty on this one, is that Christ fills up his church and then his church is, is filling up the world with his rule as his ambassadors. Fullness of Christ exists in the church. It's incredible. These are all incredible realities. Uh, and yet, I, I want to just draw your attention to, to one in particular, and, and then we'll, we'll conclude. It's the, it's the third one, and it, it ranges from, from 21 to 22. It's kind of connected. It says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And God put all things under Jesus' feet. First observation, Jesus has enemies. He has enemies and he takes sides. What does it mean to be God's enemy? Well, it means to live under the lordship of someone else other than Jesus. Whether that's your lordship doing whatever your heart wants instead of listening to the voice of God. Whether that's the lordship of another a false god or a false religion. This makes you an enemy of God. Now, all of us, naturally, are rebels against God. We love our sin and we hate his rule. One of the most wonderful things about God is that he likes to make enemies into family. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Non-Christian, we Christians were enemies of God. Paul, the apostle, was an enemy of God. 
Right now, you are an enemy of God. But you are not beyond the saving reach of God's arm. For it is long, and none knows how long. God delights to save his enemies. And for those who persist in rebellion, God will rule over. He will conquer his enemies. That's the, the second observation. You notice here, in heavenly places, far above, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. What's going on here is th- this list, Paul is saying, there are supernatural beings that are at war with God that you are aware of that Christ ultimately reigns over. There are hostile powers that are unseen and Jesus has power over them. And you never have to worry about Jesus' power being usurped or running out. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His name is above every name that is named. Isn't that interesting? What is all this name talk? You have to remember that Paul is writing to a people in Ephesus that were very familiar with magic and the occult. They believed in incantations and spells, and they dabbled with evil spirits. And so, one of the things that would be part and partial to this would be employing names of these forces to bring about a a result that you desired. And so, in the case of the Ephesians, the Artemis cult was very big in Ephesus, and so something like, uh, in the name of Artemis of the Ephesians, I tell you, demon, come out of that person. And it would would obey, or whatever other situation you can envision. See, the naming of names was foundational to magic. Knowing the right names and invoking them was a means for harnessing the power and the service of the beings represented by their appellations, their names. This is really interesting, because the only other time that this kind of language shows up is in Acts chapter 19 where Paul is ministering in Ephesus. And he's doing these extraordinary works. It's where like pieces of his clothing are healing people. And one of the things that happens is is there are other groups of people that increase their revenue and their reputation by serving as as exorcists and people that are are really spiritual. And so in Acts chapter 19, we we meet, if you remember when we walk through the text, the, the seven sons of Sceva. And they're, they're going to try and employ the name of Jesus. Well, let me read to you the account. Acts 19, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize. 
But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, praised. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, that's their spell books full of incantations, together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Therefore, the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. This is quite the story. These seven sons of Sceva hope to increase their reputation and their revenue, and they try to employ the name of Jesus because they've heard about Jesus to drive out this evil spirit. But when they do, when they try to put the power of Jesus in their employ, it doesn't work. Because Jesus' name is the name that is above every name. He doesn't serve anyone. And the demon says, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. He beats the seven sons of Sceva bloody and sends them away naked and afraid. They they gain a different brand of notoriety than they had intended. It it is quite quite the story. There's a lot there, but I just want to bring your attention to this. The result of this whole encounter is that the name of Jesus is praised. And the people in Ephesus realize that the power that is in Christ, that is toward them in Christ, is greater than all of these other magical arts that they were dabbling in. Do you notice, these are Christians who are tossing out their spell books. See, they came to Christ, but they had very pagan backgrounds. They believed in Jesus, but they did not let go of their dependence on, well, these other spirits. Once this encounter happens, they recognize that Jesus is the only power they need. Jesus is the only God they need. They need not turn to spells and incantations. They recognize that Jesus' name is the name that is above every name. Above what Paul says in Philippians 2.9. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wants the Ephesians to know this power of God. He wants you to know that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is toward you. It's at work in you. It's at work through you. God's power is towards you, Christian. It is toward us who believe. And Paul says, do you even realize it? Do you realize the magnitude of the power of God that is toward you? It's almost as if Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to sing. No guilt in life, no fear in death. That is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. 
No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. What Paul is saying is that nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no tragedy, no trial, no tears, nothing can threaten that which God has promised you. Nothing can threaten the hope to which he has called you. Nothing can threaten you because you are God's inheritance. And he is omnipotent. He has the power to get whatever he wants done, done, and he is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. Brothers and sisters, when you know this God, you know this God like we do, you pray. You pray because who knows what God might do? Oh, I pray that we would know God more that we would especially have an acute awareness of his power toward us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your kindness towards us. We have done nothing to deserve your love, nothing to earn the great gift of your salvation. You you are so kind and good to us. Thank you that you are rich in mercy and that you are a big spender. We thank you that those of us who know Jesus, as the psalmist says, we have more joy than the world has when its grain and its wine abound. Lord, increase our capacities for Christ. Help us to know you more deeply, more truly, Help us to see what you have spoken in your word by your Holy Spirit. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.